Squawk 1200, you are cleared on route. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Cleared on Route, the Canadian Aviation Podcast. I'm Flying Dan, Danny Vicar, and joining me today is Chris. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Uh, now, we're both aviation enthusiasts. Uh, we've both got quite a bit of flight time in the simulators, and we hope to make this program fairly interesting to you. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as I was saying, we've got a lot of uh, flight sim experience Danny himself is actually going out to get his uh, private wings, so a little bit of information from that point of view, from the simulated point of view. We're going to take a look at you know news in and around the aviation world, uh, things from a, a Canadian slant. We're both Canadian, obviously. Probably just trying to have a lot of fun, you know, trying to share our, our interest in aviation. Yeah, exactly. And really, we're not really going to just keep it aviation, you know, general aviation, business aviation, military. Uh, we've also enjoyed learning about space and space exploration, and Chris is a big fan of uh, the space shuttle and everything to do with NASA. Uh, so you can hear, you can expect to hear a lot of stories that have to deal with space exploration as well. And of course, Canada plays a big role in space. We have two big arms that we sent up there. Um, Both the arms are, are now retired with the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, no, there's, there's one left up on the station, sorry. Um, but yeah, both of those are, are contributions of the Canadian space science uh, realm. And, and with the retirement of the shuttle, obviously there's a lot less going on. Um, but, but still taking part in the unmanned programs, um, you know, the, the exploration involved in the trip to Jupiter, the recent probe Juno that launched, um, and a number of initiatives like that. <clears throat> Yeah, and uh, I believe uh, Comdev, uh, local Southern Ontario uh, satellite builder and uh, such, they were working on the replacement or a new friend for the Hubble telescope. Uh, so we'll have to uh, look up some stories on that and see how that was doing. So quite a lot of uh, aviation and space news you can expect to hear here on uh, Clear Dawn Route. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's get into some news. Uh, now, we got an article here saying that the ISS will be deorbited in 2020, and that's a quote from the Russian Space Agency. Yeah, the uh, one of the directors of the Russian Space Agency announced that in 2020, the International Space Station would be deorbited uh, and sunk to the bottom of one of the oceans. Now, the thing about this, you know, obviously this is not necessarily a, a new policy. This is more something that... Uh, they came out, they, they restated what their position was, and it's it's been picked up in the headlines. Um, obviously, at some point, the, the technology and the parts in the space station are going to start falling apart. You know, they're, they're going to require more and more maintenance, uh, more money to upkeep aging technology. And at some point, the equation of upkeep versus just putting up newer, better systems isn't going to make sense. And uh, to avoid contributing to, to space debris and space garbage, you have to get rid of the, the space station. Now, there's a uh, lot of garbage up there already from what I've been reading. Yeah, and it's it's already become a serious problem. I forget exactly when it was, but there were, were two satellites that collided uh, within uh, about a year ago. 
and the resulting debris field obviously is is much smaller you know much more radically moving parts and at the speed you're talking about up there you get a small tiny piece even you know something fairly fairly small like a grain of sand and it can do some serious damage to a to a vehicle um, so rather than risk that, you, you deorbit the space station and, and put it down in an ocean somewhere. Kind of like they did with Mir all those years ago in 2001. Yep, exactly like that. Although exactly. it does seem, uh, I mean, the ISS went up in 98, uh, so it gets about a 22-year span. So we've gone up seven years compared to Mir, which was only up there for about 15. Yeah, and, and as well, the, the ISS just recently completed its construction phase, if you can believe it or not. Um, most all this time it's, it's been under construction, and the, the space shuttle actually played the pivotal role in carrying most of the modules up to, uh, to the space station. And, and now that it's completed, it would seem kind of uh, a shame to ditch it in the ocean at that point. But it's still, you know, another eight years. We've still got time with it. There's, there's a number of things going on up there. There's uh, new, new science, uh, like the Robonaut is up there. He's a you know, kind of torso-up humanoid robot that's meant to discover w- how robots operate in that, how they can work with people, and, and how that form factor can operate in that environment. Um, so there's still a lot going on for the next eight years. And there's also talk of trying to extend it to 2028 to try and get, you know, a little more life out of the station. Yeah, now, is there any reason they don't uh, try to maybe retrieve it or retrieve part of it once it comes down? Well, I mean, cost is, is the main factor in, in most space flight decisions. And with the, the shuttle retired, there, there's not really anything to bring down that much cargo or that much mass uh, in a controlled or safe manner. There's no capsule, there's no heat shield that, that you could bring it down on. So there's, there's really no way to, to save it. At the, the most novel proposals have kind of been to take parts off of it and use them to contribute towards, you know, a lunar base or a lunar orbiter or to send them to Mars and, and make a space station there. Um, and, and some people, you know, some commentators, and they're saying, well, let's take the whole space station en masse and let's, let's move it to the moon so that it can, you know, have a longer life in orbit. But, but none of that's very realistic when you take into consideration the, the burn to put it on path to the moon would literally just rip the station apart uh, in most cases. It's it's not meant to take that amount of force. You know, and left unchecked, again, the debris problem or, as the orbit decays, if it falls down to Earth in, in a location that you haven't planned, like a city, it's, it's obviously much more dangerous at that point. Yeah, for sure. So I guess if uh, once it comes down, something else will go up in its place? E- yeah, and and that's actually probably the the silver lining. All this is is one of the things that I'm always really excited about is is this new kind of private space race. Um, and there's a there's a company called Bigelow Aerospace, and what they do is they build inflatable space station modules, and and they've actually had two prototypes, uh, a first generation and then a second generation, of their their inflatable space station designs in orbit right now above our heads. Um, have been for the last couple of years. And and the significant problem that they actually face is they don't have a reliable way to get people to to their space stations. They can't get a ride up to to these inflatable stations. But once the you know the taxi rides figured it out, they're ready to start selling these modules to hotels or or research bodies, universities, whoever wants a, a private space station. So the the hope is by 2020 
you know, the ISS can retire kind of our first, you know, significant attempt at building and, and maintaining a space station. And, and then all of its kind of offspring can, can take over. And we'll have all these different space stations geared towards recreation or, or science or commercial interests. Yeah, it seems like it'll become a very busy neighborhood really fast once uh, we get over the whole uh, expensive flight to orbit uh, part of it. Uh, now, there are some things I think uh, Boeing is doing. I think we have an article there uh, yeah. to get up there. Yeah, uh, a lot of news on that front as well. And again, part of the, the private space race that's very exciting is the return of the capsule. You know, growing up as as kids our age, um, the, the space shuttle was really the only thing, uh, the only show in town. Um, when you talked about people flying through space, they... They obviously flew up on a rocket and glided back down, and that's that's all there was to it. But with that program ending and and people looking for the most kind of efficient and and cost worthy designs, the the capsule obviously comes back as as a winner. It's it's a tin can with a heat shield on the bottom, and you put it on the top of a rocket. There's not much to it. Um, and so both Boeing and uh, a company called SpaceX, started by Elon Musk have started building these capsules to take people to and from the space station, to take cargo, uh, to take them to these big, low aerospace, uh, you know, habitats. Well, that's cool. That's very cool. I mean, Boeing, uh, I guess, in recent years uh, was trying to build a fighter, and now they're trying to get to space. Yeah, and, and I mean, there, there's always been, obviously, private interest in the space race. It It was these same companies who built the Apollo hardware and, and built the original space shuttles and, and what have you. And, and what's really changed in this, in this private space race that's exciting is more the cost model where, you know, rather than doing cost uh, plus, they're actually trying to do, well, we'll pay you $50 million a ticket and, you know, you have to try and build your hardware for that. So it's a much more, you know, competitive pricing model uh, model. And it's leading to these rockets like the Falcon 9 where, you know, they can very cheaply put up seven people in a, in a capsule and bring them back down. Uh, and, and they're competing with the Soyuz, which I think is about $55 million uh, per seat. So now NASA can actually purchase, you know, American-built and, and put up their own astronauts from Florida once again. And, and to that extent, I mean, one of the, the news articles we're seeing here is, is that Boeing is actually going, uh, going ahead and training their own employees um, to fly on their their new spacecraft, the CST-100, and and they're hoping that by 2015 they'll have three test flights, and and the last one, some Boeing employees, uh, hopefully their engineers, will be able to fly to the the space station. Now, would would they still be using the NASA Kennedy Center and all that, all the infra- infrastructure that is already there, or do you think they'll kind of just do their own thing? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of options in that. The the Kennedy Space Center, with its launch pads, uh, are all custom geared towards the the spacecraft that NASA had in mind. The the two launch pads, 39A and B, one of them uh, is still geared towards the shuttles, with all of the additional you know rigging to load payload and and handle the rockets. The other launch pad was stripped down of its uh, shuttle gear a few years back and converted to the Orion program. And obviously that one has also been canceled, so there's another pad that doesn't have a, a rocket to fly. SpaceX has been flying from from Cape Canaveral, 
So they're flying on just kind of a, a side pad there. And, and they'll probably continue to fly from there. Um, and as well in Virginia, the, the legislators have been courting a lot of these uh, rocket builders to fly out of Virginia as well. So, so that's the exciting part. You're starting to get different spaceports, you know, the traditional ones. And, and then all along the East Coast, other states are starting to try and compete for those launch sites to try and get, you know, the commercial aspect of this out of, out of their states. Yeah, it seems like it's not uh, just government money going into it anymore. There's private investors, corporate investors, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll win the lottery and get ourselves a seat on that uh, Boeing sh- shuttle. Or- oh, I mean, that, that would just be a dream come true. That would just be fantastic. I, I think the one that's more likely for, for fellows like you and I would be the uh, Spaceship One, or Spaceship Two, that Virgin Galactic's flying yeah, yeah. out of uh, New Mexico there. They've, they've been building a spaceport there mm-hmm. that's more geared towards the suborbital and, and space planes and, and what have you. And I think they're going to be you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars per ticket, but aiming to get it in the tens of thousands of dollars yeah. well before we get old. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of exciting stuff happening. Seems like we're heading towards, uh, you know, f- the Star Trek world of uh, first contact. Once we develop warp speed, maybe the Vulcans will come down and. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we're Federation you know we're on our way. Planets. Yeah, we're we're taking the first steps, and uh, the the old saying around the space industry is that once you're in low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. Uh, you know, it's just so much fuel to get up there that if we can figure that part out, everything else, Mars, the asteroid belt. Is, is relatively easy once you're up in space. So it's an exciting time for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, now that we've got the outer space out of the way, let's uh, come back down to Earth, so to speak. Now I see the F-35 was... Uh, the F-35 program was suspended for a while. They had some technical difficulties there. Um, and now they're finally back up and running. Yeah, the F-35s were were suspended uh, earlier in August. There's a limited test program going on in the United States uh, with the first few production models. They had a problem in the integrated power package, which helps with the startup of the engine and then cooling once it's uh, it's running. And I guess without that, they decided, you know, just not safe to fly them. Obviously, you know, relevant to to Canadian aviation because of the... Uh, our interest in the jets uh, we're purchasing a bunch of them for the canadian forces here and so you know delay startups it's it's been a program that's kind of been marred with delays and and overruns um but continues As with on. any really military program and uh, yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, let's, program. let's be honest i mean that's kind of how it is with those projects um and, and especially kind of in these high technology ones when you don't know quite what you're dealing with up front it's it's hard to estimate right yeah yeah, Canada is, uh, well, at least uh, the Prime Minister at this time, uh, Mr. Harper, said he's going to be buying 65 F-35s to replace our 80 of our uh, CF-18 Hornets. Uh, yeah. So that should be interesting. Our design is a little bit different than the stock. We are getting a chute at the back. I guess yeah. to stop us on those uh, slick uh, cold lake and, uh, uh, oh, Where's that? Where's the? Where's that other CF-18 squadron somewhere in Quebec? Yeah, I'm not too sure exactly where that one is, but uh, definitely unique designs. And and I mean, you know, uh, F-35 is obviously interesting to me, and and some design aspects like that uh, are surprising for the Air Force, like the the single engine design, especially for a country with such vast un, uninhabited 
uh, you know, expanses that need patrol, and, and a lot of them in sub-zero temperatures, it seems like uh, a recipe for disaster at times, a single-engine plane like that, uh, yeah. a little bit of ice and, and the guy's down. Yeah, well, they're not the only ones that, uh, well, at least rather uh, we're not the only ones that were fighting to get a dual-engine design there. Uh, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, uh, who has the um, vertical takeoff and landing model, they wanted a two-engine as well. Uh, basically, same reasons. I mean, they have to land on carriers in the middle of, o- of an ocean. Uh, if the engine goes, well, you just lost your, you know, $200 million, $300 million plane. Yeah, um, and, and so I mean, these planes are expensive. Right now we're talking a $122 million flyaway cost per per jet right now. Um, and that's and that's based on the assumption that the Americans will follow through on purchasing the the 2,400 jets that they committed to. If if they don't do that, if they pare back how many they want to buy, all of the partner countries are going to be you know higher per unit. Um, so that, you know this could easily be 150, 200 million dollar per aircraft when when it goes down. Yeah. Now now it's interesting you mentioned that all, all the partner countries. It's a uh, this whole uh, joint strike fighter development uh, program i was just watching the uh the uh battle of the x-planes documentary uh from nova and uh by the way folks if you haven't watched that you you should really look it up it's on netflix and it's uh, about two hours but it's two hours well worth the time but as i was saying this whole jo- joint strike fighter f- joint strike fighter wow let's just call it jsf <laughs> This whole JSF uh, program has been a uh, collaboration between quite a few countries in, in the world, which is, I think, the first time when a fighter that's designed for the U.S. Uh, military uh, or for the U.S. Armed Forces and Navy and such uh, really gets cooperation with other countries. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the first time that such an extensive level of a program like this has actually kind of managed to produce an aircraft. Um, there was a, a previous attempt around the Vietnam era, and I think it was uh, the F-104 Starfighter. I think I'll have to I'll have to double check that. Um, but they tried to make a you know a plane that would work for both the Navy and the Air Force at the time, um, and competing requirements just kind of you know wired down the product. Really created a lot of bad blood. Um, so so in that regard, it's, it was. You know, a, a failure, but this time around it was apparently a, a success. Although there's some critics at this point, um, but yeah, very, very much a success. And and you know, different levels of cooperation from different countries as well, uh, with the UK as a partner company, and then other countries contributing different amounts of uh, money and engineering expertise in exchange for access. Yeah, for sure, it does look like a great uh, airplane. Little, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. As if any plane. of these fighters are little. All right. So uh, the last one we have have here is uh, just a, a short note. Aerospace engineer Bert Rutan's retiring after designing pretty much every coolest plane ever. Uh, in in my opinion, anyways. I mean, he's a, he's a kind of personal hero of mine, and one of the reasons I'm so into aviation. But anyways, he's retiring. He's doing one last design. Um, and what he's designed is a, a flying car. Uh, it's called the Model 367. Uh, this is in keeping with his uh, preference to just number everything, not give it a, a prototype name. And it's a flying car. It's The wings detach. They fold up and attach the car in between this kind of dual fuselage, 
Jeep-style car. I wish I could show everyone a picture here. It looks like two solar cars glued together. We'll, we'll, we'll post a picture of it in the show notes. Okay, cool. And and so it's just this little hybrid car. And and some specs on it here, you know, if you're talking flight range, it goes 850 to 1,200 kilometers. It's cruising speed, 160 kilometers an hour. Top speed of 320 kilometers an hour. Um, on the road... It's got about a 68-liter tank of gas, and it'll go 1,300 kilometers on that. If you switch it over to the all-electric, you can get 56 kilometers. Um, and with the wingspan, it's about 9 meters, and with the wings off, it's about 2 meters. So it should fit into a single-car garage. So, you know, it sounds like a pretty impressive little vehicle, you know. For not much gas, you can you can really kind of go places. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a, not only is it a hybrid vehicle, it's a hybrid gas-electric vehicle, it's also a hybrid car-airplane vehicle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the list of features is, is, is pretty stunning when you consider it. You know, but do take a look at, at the picture of it. I, I doubt many people will be seen in them uh, downtown. Oh, know, for sure. It, it kind of looks silly. Yeah, um, but anyways, that's that's Rutan's last design, and and I love it because I love everything he's designed. You know, along he's also designed some some of my favorite planes here. Obviously, Spaceship One was his design. Yep. Uh, along with Spaceship Two and Three, he's he's had a hand in. A long time ago, before you know, before I knew much about planes, he had actually started his uh, his own company to do kit airplanes to sell them to other aviators to build in their garage. And he designed the very easy and the long easy designs, which uh, I think uh, they made a couple hundred of each of those in in total. And and there's a lot of actually, if you look on model airplane websites, the long easy is a really really popular, uh, almost ready to fly kit or or plan kit for people to pick up. Mm-hmm. You know, he also the other the other one I've mentioned is is the Voyager and the Global Flyer. These were two airplanes that were designed to fly nonstop around the world without refueling. Um, and, and both achieved that goal. First the Voyager uh, with propellers, and then the Global Flyer was a jet, which did the same thing. You know, and everything. He, he was involved in uh, NASA programs to, to design spacecraft, a, a rocket that had helicopter blades so it would, you know, come back down like that, uh, the B-2 bomber, things like that. So just, uh, you know, immensely uh, popular and important uh, aerospace engineer. Yeah, it sounds like he's had a hand in pretty much every major uh, air and space uh, sh- ship, a craft, whatever you want to call it, in the last uh, 40 years or so. Absolutely, and and with specific technologies as well. Um, you know, the company he, he has now, Scaled Composites, has that in their name. Uh, a lot of the, the planes he designed early on, he was one of the first engineers to use carbon fibers or, or other composite alloys to to reduce the weight of aircraft um, and, and increase the structural integrity. So there's a lot of concepts lifting body aircraft. You know, Spaceship One, if you look at the, you know, the folding mechanism of the wing, just very kind of ingenious design concepts for a lot of aeronautical problems. So so not only, uh, you know, a hand in everything, but very original in, in its solutions. So sad day, no more Burt Rutan designs, you know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who takes up uh, his uh, flame. Yeah, can't wait. All right, that's the news for this episode. Uh, next up with Danny is upcoming events. It's still summer here in uh, southern Ontario, so uh, we've got quite a few other uh, 
aviation-related events coming up. Now, of course, these will be in this general area, but if you have any events that you'd like us to, to mention, uh, please free, free, feel free to contact us through our website. One event of note coming up uh, next weekend is the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo International Air Show. It will be taking place at the Waterloo International Airport, uh, Charlie Yankee, Kilo Foxtrot, if you want to look it up online. It's a great air show. They've got a lot of uh, really cool aircraft on display and on um, and performing as well. They've got some F-16s, F-18s coming out and doing some uh, some really neat stuff. Um, as well, they have an F-86 Sabre from uh, the Cold War era. Last year, they also had a MiG-29. Not sure if it's going to be there this year. Usually, it and Sabre do a, uh, a flyby, but certainly a lot of cool stuff happening um, at the air show now the air show as i said takes place next weekend that would be august 20th and 21st at the waterloo international airport do end up um, at the air show if you're in the area go to waterloo um, just look up the waterloo air show online and you'll be able to find uh, information about parking and all that and we'll be putting a link uh, in our show notes um, and uh, you'll see a lot of cool airplanes you get to talk to a lot of cool pilots um, and oh, oh, I, I completely forgot. The Snowbirds will be there flying their CT114 Tutors. They'll be there um, demonstrating their 2011 program. So I mean, um, you can't miss that. Um, now, if you if full aircrafts aren't your thing, there's also an RC aircraft uh, or a model aircraft air show happening next weekend as well. Now, this is happening in the Stony Creek. Uh, at the Stony Creek Airfield, rather, and it's the SOMA Air Show, um, the Southern Ontario Model Airplane Association Air Show. Again, if you look it up online, and we'll be, put, we'll be putting a, no, a link to it in our show notes, if you look it up online, you'll be able to get more information about it. I've never been. This is the first time I've heard of it, and I, I definitely do plan on being there. Uh, so other than those two air shows, there's also the uh, Canadian International Air Show at, in Toronto at the Canadian uh, National Exhibition place that'll be taking place uh the weekend of uh september 2nd through the 4th i believe their show days are saturday and sunday so september 3rd and september 4th you definitely want to check that one out they usually get all the big guys coming in uh f-16s f-18s a couple of years ago i think they had the f-22 there as well so that was pretty cool fortunately i missed it but last year they brought out one of my all-time favorite planes uh the c-17 uh, it was on its way to Afghanistan, so it came down from Trenton and uh, decided to put on a little show for us before it headed out on its mission. So there you have it, folks. A couple of uh, air shows happening uh, next weekend and uh, another one in a few weeks from now. Definitely check them out. So every week uh, we're going to try to do um, either um, Danny's or Chris's topic du jour, or both of us will have uh, each a topic that... Uh, We'll want to discuss, and I mean, th- this is going to be something that is more of a general education, um, nothing too polarizing, we hope. Um, most of the times we'll be presenting things like air- aircraft or uh, programs happening in and about uh, aviation and space exploration, things like that. So for this week's uh, Danny's topic, um, and we're definitely going to have to come up with a better name than that. But <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, so this week I wanted to talk to you about the uh, De Havilland Canada DHC-5 Buffalo airplane. Uh, now, this airplane 
was designed as a short takeoff and landing airplane. Allegedly, it can take off in a shorter distance than even a light aircraft, like a Cessna 172 or something like that, can manage. And what's really cool about it, and what really got my interest going in this uh, aircraft, is the fact that if you go to the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum up here in Hamilton, they actually have a uh, full-size DHC-5 Buffalo there on display, on static display. They're very proud of it. It was uh, restored from a wreck that was found somewhere down in the States. Um, And this year, actually, during uh, the air show, the Hamilton Air Show, I uh, had the chance to interview one of the people that was involved with the restoration. Um, So I'm going to play that interview for you now, and uh, maybe we'll go into it a little bit more uh, afterwards. My name is Gary Bouldier. Gary Bouldier, okay, and we're here with the uh, Buffalo aircraft. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about the aircraft? How did it come here, and what happened to it? Basically, it was with the Sudanese Air Force back in 1987. They bought it brand new from de Havilland. It's airframe number 85. And what happens was, is on a routine military night ops operation, the pilot landed it in a short takeoff and landing exercise, but he collapsed the nose gear. Oh, no. So what happens was, is they, the first photo you'll see in our photo mosaic there on the wall is a picture of it when it was in Frankfurt, Germany. And what they did is they welded the nose gear permanently down, and they were going to fly it back to North America. With the nose gear welded down? With the nose gear welded down. That's a lot of drag. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of drag, yes. So they finally managed to make it back to the United States. They were going to have an aviation company in the Carolinas. I believe it was in uh, South Carolina, was going to repair it. But what happened due to the political unrest... I guess uh, their assets were seized in that, so basically it was never worked on, and it was parted out, and we found it in November 2003, rotting basically in the back of the airfield. Oh, wow. Basically an empty field in Greensville, South Carolina. With just this air, airframe in just there? Just the airframe. It was just completely gutted it out. So with some volunteers from there and some volunteers up here, uh, a company called DAC Aviation, they heard about it, and then they wanted to basically find the airframe and donated it to the museum. And they're the ones that basically sort of jump-started this, and they wanted to basically build an aircraft to represent the one that was shot down in 74 when the Buffalo 9, they call them, 9 Canadians perished on a routine uh, mission okay. uh, flying to uh, Cyprus. Okay. So that's what happened, and then we basically started it. We uh, disassembled it. We only had six days to go down there to pull it apart because the guy was ready to put it on a scrap truck and take it to the scrapyard. That would have been a waste. So we basically we scrambled with volunteers from there, managed to take it apart, put it on flatbed trucks, brought it back up here, and we basically started in middle of the winter, January. Started Good old Canadian it. style. Yeah, we started putting it together. So finally we got it finished and it was dedicated in 2009, the 35th anniversary of this aircraft being shot down, which was uh, Buffalo 461. So if anybody wants to know the history of the story behind this plane, go to www.buffalo461.ca and they can basically get the history of this aircraft. All right, perfect. 
Now, it looks like it's almost flyable. Is it uh, airworthy? No, unfortunately, it's not. The airframe, since it was so old, there's a lot of uh, what they call uh, contamination and uh, okay. in that. And, and the engines themselves, we only had one complete engine. We basically rebuilt it. It's on a stand that okay. we display it in the museum. Unfortunately, we don't have it out here today because it's a little heavy. Okay. And then the other one was basically in only half put together we only had half the parts for it and they were general electric engines and they don't build them anymore so it's very 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 hard to find parts well that's a shame and it would be too expensive to put it back to airworthiness you're talking maybe a million and a half two million dollars and you could basically go buy one that's already flyable yeah fair enough yeah. all right excellent well thank you very much for your time it's thank been a you pleasure very much, Dan. It looked great thank you that was a great interview. I, I thought that it's a great story about bringing an airplane back like that and uh, showing it off, even if it is kind of an awkward-looking aircraft. Yeah, I mean, what they did with it, they actually turned it into a... Uh, well, if it was flying, it would be a flying museum. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not flying, as you just heard. Uh, it's, it's just a static display, but it, it, it looks really great. It's, it's painted in the UN paint scheme. It has the, uh, the UN symbol on it. Like I said, it almost looks ready to fly. Now... The Buffalo DHC-5 was uh, introduced by de Havilland Canada in 1965, and they built about 120 of them. And they're still being used all around the world. Uh, Canada's got one civil operator, Arctic SunWest Charters. I might want to take a flight if it's in the Arctic. And the Canadian Air Force is also, also still fly it as well. Now, the um, incident that Gary was referring to, um, happened on August 9th, 1974, when one uh, Buffalo aircraft was shot down over Syria. Now, I believe, from what I've read about it, it was a case of mistaken identity. But if, if anybody's interested in getting even more information about the aircraft, about the mission that they were planning, and actually about the restoration process as well, they've got some great shots of the restoration process up on their website at uh, www dot buffalo461.com and uh, you can donate there you can help and it's just a really great story they've been able to bring it back to canada and uh, restore it and now it's sitting in the world plane heritage museum it's just too bad they didn't put canadian liveries on i'm just looking at some photos here online of, of various liveries for the buffalo and there's the 442 transport and rescue squadron i mm -hmm. guess uh, yep. a canadian forces one here with a, a bright yellow and a, a more traditional Canadian red and white line on it. It yeah. looks great. Well, I think uh, they, they were um, they did restore it with uh, the Buffalo 9 in mind, and actually Gary is related to one of the people that uh, unfortunately perished on that flight. So I think uh, since it was operating for the United Nations and whatnot, they decided to just paint it in the United Nations livery. Either way, it, it looks great. And uh, from uh, from from the stats that I was able to find on it, I mean, it, it can lift. I mean, its empty weight is twenty five thousand pounds. Its maximum takeoff weight is fifty, but its payload is eighteen thousand pounds. So it can lift quite a bit, and especially for the nineteen sixties when it was built, that was quite a bit of payload. And not to mention that it can take off and land in very short distances. So. Yeah, I mean, an impressive aircraft, and, and I'm sure very hardy for the Arctic missions. Like, if, if I was going to take a flight up there, this would probably be the aircraft I'd want to be on. Great little little aircraft there. All right, so my topic de jour, topic to episode, 
uh, is covering a small Pico satellite, which we saw in Detroit at Maker Fair 2011, called FRETS-1. It's a TubeSat-style satellite, which is being provided and launched by Interorbital Systems. And, and how this program works is Interorbital Systems will charge the end user $8,000 U.S., flat fee, and they will send you your own satellite in a box kit. You design your satellite, you build it, you add parts, you do what you want with it, and you send it back to them. They will attach it to a rocket with a bunch of other TubeSats and send it into space for you. FRETS-1 is a project by Wes Failer, Don Smith, and Ed Campbell. They're the, the leaders of this project, although you know plenty of people have, have pitched in or helped over the Internet. They've designed their satellite, FRETS-1, and they're going to send it up as soon as it's ready. And I had a chance to, to talk with them at Maker Faire and, and chat about their satellite. And specifically what they're looking to do is, is test out an ion engine that they've designed. And, and they're looking for a way to measure how much fuel the satellite has left and, and accurately gauge what's left in the tank. You know, in zero gravity is, is pretty difficult. It, it doesn't settle at the bottom. You can't use a, a sensor to kind of read it very easily. There's no way to weigh the tank. And so what they've decided is, is by measuring the angular momentum of the satellite as you consume fuel, and that, that changing mass should be an indicator of, of how much fuel is left. So using standard off-the-shelf accelerometers at, at either end of the satellite, they're looking to get that measurement and, and tell how much fuel is left. So that's, that's their, their satellite. No, no set launch date yet. Uh, once it's launched, it's it's going to be in a sun-synchronous polar orbit, which is just kind of a, a fancy way to say, you know, orbiting around the poles almost, somewhere, you know, between 80 and 90 degrees, uh, maybe a little higher than that, and, and always in view of the sun. So no matter what season, no matter uh, where the Earth is, the, the solar panel should be able to pick up some sunlight and, and power the craft. So they'll launch it off, you know, they'll, they'll do their tests, and satellite will eventually burn up. So just uh, an interesting little project that they have on the go there. That sounds really awesome. Just taking a look at the interorbital uh, site right now, and uh, they've got quite a few satellites slated for uh, launch. I mean, it looks like there's over 20 of them that are yeah. already gone. So this, this, this is really, uh, there's a lot of people that like to do this. It's it's quite an interesting initiative, and and if you consider it, I mean, eight thousand dollars for your own satellite really isn't isn't that much. I mean, that's that's just not a lot of money to put a satellite into orbit, and and especially if you're, you know, at the the university level or if you're doing space research as a small company, that's that's a very reasonable fee to be involved literally in in space research. Another one that they had mentioned, and and I forget the name, but they're sending a satellite up, and its only purpose is to transmit MIDI packets back down so that people can pick them up over amateur radio and then decode them and, and listen to the music that this satellite is, is sending. Um, so it's just a lot of neat community initiative, too, you know? Yeah, that sounds really great. If I had the money, uh, if we could raise the funds, probably send one of our own up there. Well, I'm, I'm already saving, so, uh, you know, once, once I've got 8K, I'll give you a call. Yeah, well... we'll get. <laughs> We'll have some sort of robot race up in, in space there. Robot wars. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, actually, you know, you can... 
when, when I was talking to him, your robot would have to be very small. I think he said it was about 200 grams of additional payload you can add on. So whatever you do do has to be fairly minimal. There's there's not too much capability in these. Um, and, and even when I asked him, you know, the, the ion engine, what kind of maneuvers you... He's like, well... It's not really for maneuvers. That's that's not the point. It's it's more about that hypothesis of the of the fuel measurement at 200 grams and and the orbits they're talking about. There's just not enough there to make any sort of you know flying death weapon, unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending how you look at it. <laughs> well, it's it's all subjective, you know. Yeah. Well, we don't have any listener mail right now, do we? Uh, no, no. It would be. Well, I got some spam from the from the contact form there, so I'll have to try to put try to put a captcha on it or something. ZXJK ZXJ is not really a question. So yeah, no, definitely not. So I guess we move on to shoutouts. So for my shoutouts, uh, I'd like to give a big shout out to the guys at the Airplane Geeks podcast, as well as Playing Crazy Down Under. There are a couple of podcasts. The Airplane Geeks are from uh, the, the United States, uh, just south of us here. Um, and playing crazy down under they're from australia there are two podcasts about aviation that uh, i started listening to about a year and a half ago and uh it's just like a good book you just can't quit it um not to mention that they've helped me a lot with uh getting everything ready for uh this recording session and getting equipment ready and getting uh settings proper uh doing uh you know mix minus a lot of stuff that uh quite frankly i didn't know, didn't even think of. So uh, Max Flight and uh, Steve Vischer, who are the primary uh, producers and editors of the uh, Airplane Geeks and uh, Plane Crazy Down Under, respectively, they've been really great help. Um, you know, you, then you've got, uh, for the Airplane Geeks, you've got uh, Dan Webb, Rob Mark, and uh, David Vanderhoof there. And uh, I've, uh, I've discussed stuff with them over Twitter, and uh, they're always up to... Uh, you know, answer any questions you might have. I mean, uh, David Vanderhoof is their military aviation guy. And uh, I had a silly question, you know, like, how do they decide, you know, this aircraft, the next uh, fighter is going to be DF-35 instead of, you know, DF-39? And uh, <laughs> he came back with a Wikipedia answer, and but the answer was basically, <laughs> yeah, you know, they just kind of decide. It's just like, yep, yeah, uh, we'll go 35 this time. Um, so, and, and all the other guys and, uh, Grant McCarron from, uh, playing crazy not under, he has been really great to uh, chat with on Twitter and stuff. And these guys are, these are only two podcasts that have a really large, um, community of podcasts in aviation. Um, there's probably hundreds of aviation podcasts down in the States. Um, one big one that I know of from Australia um, and now us up here in Canada. And uh, without their help and uh, their uh, willingness to see somebody else succeed, um, this couldn't be possible. So really big uh, big props to them. Thanks for your help, guys. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode, folks. Uh, thanks for listening to the first episode of Cleared On Route, Canadian Aviation Podcast. We sincerely hope you enjoyed it. You can find links to the stories we covered um, and show notes on our website at www.clearedonroute.com. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please contact us through the contact form on our website. Uh, you can also send them to clearedonroute.podcast at gmail.com and on Twitter at clearedonroute. That's C-L-E-A-R-E-D-E-N-R-O-U-T-E. Until next time, AV Navigate Community.